Wealth managers are not just entrusted with looking after their clients' fortunes. They also often end up looking after their clients' secrets. In order to help pick assets, minimise investment taxes and plan for passing on wealth, they also often need to learn about illicit affairs and which heirs might be the problem child. Their proximity to the inner lives of the rich mean wealth managers are usually a pretty tight-lipped bunch. But last year, Marlena Son, who had managed hundreds of millions of dollars belonging to two heiresses to the Getty family fortune, broke ranks. After serving the sisters for eight years, she was abruptly fired and then sued by the pair, who alleged she had duped them into paying her a multi-million dollar bonus and thereby breached her fiduciary duty, a legal obligation to act in her client's best interests. She countersued, claiming her sacking was retaliation for not supporting the Getty family's, quote, dubious tax avoidance scheme to dodge $300 million worth of Californian inheritance taxes. This skirmish embodies the stereotype that many might hold about what wealth managers do and who their clients are. But the industry is changing quickly. New technologies have made providing wealth management advice much cheaper. The pot of global wealth is growing very quickly. And the business is appealing for banks because, unlike loan-making or trading, it requires very little capital. The upshot is that what was once a niche service that big global banks offer to the very elite is spreading, both around the world and from being the preserve of the uber-rich to a service for the merely wealthy. It has become perhaps the most appealing business in all of banking. So, why does everyone want to manage your wealth? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Taipei, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, why wealth managers want to do business with the not-so-wealthy. First, we hear about a seismic shift in the once-stuffy wealth management industry. Then we get some advice from a wealth manager. Don't buy boats, because boats are very expensive. And finally, we hear why banks are falling over themselves to get into the sector. We expect 150 million new customers entering the wealth management business in the next 10 years. Mike, Tom, hello. Hello. Hi, Alice. Mike, what are you uh, up to in Taipei this week? I'm actually here for a conference about semiconductors. It is such a lovely city. Big fan of Taipei. The uh, Lexington of the East, they call it. <laughs> I don't know how uh, Taiwan is going to think about being uh, the Kentucky of Asia, but uh, I guess that's effectively what we called it. So um, have any of you had any dealings with wealth managers in the past? Only professionally, sadly, my choice of career means that my wealth doesn't require an enormous amount of management that low-fee exchange-traded funds won't provide for me. No, I'm in a uh, similar boat to Mike. I think I probably left consulting too early for that. So why are we talking about this foreign world of wealth management then, Alice? 
you are about to find out it's actually not inconceivable that either of you impoverished journalists might eventually <laughs> amass enough pennies to rub together that you could um, consider hiring a wealth manager at some point in your lives. So the stereotype is that wealth managers once only served the sort of whales or the big fish, people like the Getty family that we talked about in the intro. But Thanks in part to technology, some returns to achieving scale in the wealth management business, and that the pot of wealth worldwide is growing very quickly. Lots of banks are actually now descending from the rungs of only managing the wealth of the uber rich, the whales, into managing the wealth of goldfishes as well. Even still, surely not the goldfish that went into journalism. Uh, Before we start, I guess we should probably help to sort of draw some distinctions here between wealth managers and asset managers and the other sorts of people who might want to manage your money. It's a term that lots of people in finance use, sometimes interchangeably, even though these people often do very different things, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So in general, if you think about the hedge fund manager or an asset manager, they do the job of actually taking the money you give them and investing it into assets. So the simplest possible version of this is, you know, you might log into your Vanguard portal and buy an index fund and Vanguard will take the money that you give them and put it in the stock market. If you instead gave that money to a quant hedge fund, they would use an algorithm to allocate it across all kinds of shares or assets. A private equity manager might use it to buy, you know, a vet clinic or something, whatever private business appealed to them. And all of these kinds of money managers take their fees. So probably only a couple of basis points for a Vanguard and maybe sort of 2% or more for a private equity or or a hedge fund manager. I must have missed the uh, private equity binge on vets clinics. But just to be clear, none of these categories would be considered to be wealth managers specifically. Yep, exactly. So a wealth manager is acting as your fiduciary. They're supposed to sit down with you and understand all of your financial needs and goals and then help you pick and allocate your money across all of these different kinds of investment options. They should have make sure you're doing it in a tax efficient way and not doing stupid things like pulling all your money out when markets crash and so on. And so they're sort of the step above those asset managers. They tell you which asset managers you might want to use in effect. I suppose that dynamic makes it quite different to other roles in finance, right, compared to, you know, a hard charging investment banker, for example. Yes, I think it is quite a unique role. It's a lot more personal, certainly, than, you know, many of the other kinds of businesses do, like issuing stocks or bonds. Brooke Harrington is an author who wrote a book about the industry in 2016. And she described how one wealth manager told her that clients have to undress in front of their wealth manager who will have to learn about things like their mother's affairs, as well as their wealth goals. Wealth managers also have to put up with the eccentricities of their clients. So she describes how one client demanded that their wealth manager find a thousand sides of salmon and have them shipped to Japan by the end of the week. That wealth manager ended up calling an executive at Unilever, apparently. So when I was working on a story once, I heard from a wealth manager in Asia, he was asked to invest sort of double digit percentage of one family's wealth in bloodstock horses, which are steeds specifically bred for racing, which is not the sort of thing that usually crops up on like a CFA course. I don't think they teach this (laughs) at business school. I imagine those kind of crazy requests must breed at least some kind of stickiness in the relationship, to borrow your metaphor from a moment ago, Alice. Once you've undressed in front of one banker, I suppose you're you're probably not in a hurry to do the same in front of their competitor. Yeah, and you do tend to see this a lot. So families will stick with the same wealth manager or at least the same wealth management company for generations at a time. 
And so why are we talking about this industry now? Well, as I sort of mentioned, the industry is going through something of a boom. It sort of was this very staid, sticky business that was sort of a niche part of what banks did. But it's now really booming, thanks in part to geography, technology and demographic change. So there's a huge amount of wealth being created in Asia. Technology has allowed the automation of things like asset allocation and the ability for wealth managers to acquire customers through big online platforms like brokerages or these workplace platforms. Those have really reduced the costs of acquiring customers and also of offering wealth advice. So much so, actually, that the sort of potential customer base is, is really quickly expanding. So from the sort of mega rich to the middling rich. And at the same time, a lot more people are probably going to need wealth advice. So the baby boomers that are retiring now are really the last group that have defined benefit pension schemes, which pay them out a pension on the basis of what their salary was when they were working. Everyone else has a sort of defined contribution pension going forwards, which means the onus is a lot more on the individual to make sure that they have enough money to see themselves through retirement. And so everyone is going to need to sort of manage and take care of their retirement themselves. So it's very rapidly growing. And you're seeing sort of all kinds of banks piling in. So the industry has been quite fragmented, but you're seeing sort of a lot of consolidation and acquisitions in this space. It really is sort of the hottest trend in banking and finance right now. So I can see the appeal for the firms. What is the benefit for the customers that are potentially going to be paying for this? Yeah, that is a great question. In general, wealth managers tend to take a fee around 1% of assets under management annually, which uh, is obviously pretty meaty. And so to help us get an answer as to sort of why that service might be worth paying for, I want to speak to an actual wealth advisor to figure out what they do for their clients. So I'm now going to bring in Helen Watson, who is head of wealth management in the UK for Rothschild & Co., a financial services firm that is part owned by the Rothschild family. And full disclosure, the Rothschild family do own a minority stake in The Economist Group as well. Hi, Helen. Welcome to Money Talks. Thank you, Alice. Delighted to be here. The stereotype for a wealth manager is probably, you know, a sort of smartly dressed Swiss banker looking after a billionaire's wealth. Is that true? What kind of clients do you look after now? Well, hopefully I can dispel the idea of a smartly dressed Swiss male private banker, given that I am none of those things. No two clients are the same, regardless of what sort of walk of life they came from. And we never start with that proviso that people are the same because they're all different. But we work with families who have built businesses in all sorts of different industries. We work with tech entrepreneurs. We work with filmmakers. We work with families who, you know, have inherited from the previous generation less than you might think, given our own heritage. But, you know, the majority of our clients are first generation and have made the wealth themselves. And another stereotype that people might have is that this is a very sort of hands-on, person-to-person kind of business. But obviously, technology has got into all kinds of corners of the financial system over recent decades. So how is it changing the way that wealth managers do their job? I think from the point of view of the interaction piece with the client, we still fundamentally believe that that personal relationship is incredibly important. Having said that, enabling clients to be able to go and look at something at 3am in the morning if they really want to is an advantage. I think the rise of your ability to invest online and that therefore can be cheaper for people is all to the good. You know, I think the more that we can, as an industry, educate people about how to save and invest for the future has got to be a good thing. And if that can be done 
in an online way that makes it easy for people, I think that has to be positive. So when a client comes to you sort of with their money, what is the process by which you help them figure out what to do with it? So we would spend a lot of time talking through what it is that they're trying to achieve, what their objectives are, what their long-term goals are, what their concerns are. We typically ask them to think about it in terms of a framework, very imaginatively named the pots. So different pots of money for different things. We'll often find that a client will still have a business, for example, so that would be a pot. And then what they would have in lifestyle assets, so that will vary from person to person, but it might be houses, it might be art, it might be cars, could be anything. And then their cash needs and then the investment pots, preserving and growing wealth over time and then helping them build a plan around that. And I think one of the things that I've sort of really learned over time is that if you have really good communication with your clients around these things and you set expectations and you are prepared to politely disagree with them, you get a much better outcome in terms of building that sort of trust and confidence over time. I've got to ask you now, what are some of the uh, polite disagreements you've had to have with some clients? You know, is it like maybe you shouldn't put all of your money in in racehorses or or what what, what are some examples? Anonymous, of course. Uh, Completely anonymous. So I am renowned for suggesting people don't buy boats because boats are very expensive And as someone once said, it's a bit like standing in a shower and ripping up £50 notes. We have a lot of conversations with families about the next generation. And there are definitely times when I've had to have quite difficult conversations with clients about the fact that they're not communicating with their children and they are setting up very complex things that actually their children are not going to thank them for. So those are probably, in terms of sensitivity, it's easier to tell them not to buy a boat than it is to explain that actually maybe telling their children how it's all going to work would be a good plan. Because ultimately, if they are going to be put in the position of being responsible for the wealth, they need to understand what's going on. And that's probably where it's been the most sensitive. And of course, every family is different. And I guess this might be one of the ways in which, you know, in general, wealth managers can add value for their clients. So, you know, encouraging them not to do foolish things. But in general, you obviously take fees for your services. Why is it that people find that it's worthwhile to sort of hand over some of their hard-earned wealth to hire someone like you to help them look after it? There's lots of ways in which we think we can add value in terms of when we invest with other managers, our ability to negotiate with them in terms of what we pay them, our ability to use the benefits of scale, etc. But I really genuinely think a lot of the value that our clients see is in that piece around really encouraging them to have a plan, to stick to the plan, to be a sounding board when they're questioning things to be able to help them think through the sort of bigger questions that they have. Sometimes, as you say, to tell them not to do something is the most valuable thing you can tell them to do. I think that it's difficult to define. What I feel hopefully we deliver to our clients is that we think really hard about that service piece and we keep our clients for a long time. And so that to me suggests that people are comfortable that they are getting value for money. Helen, thank you so much for joining the show. This has been very enlightening. Thank you, Alice. It's been great talking to you too. So, Mike, 
Tom, on this question of value for money and what clients get out of this, obviously that becomes even more important if this service is going to be rolled out to all and sundry. And The Economist, along with sort of lots of other places, has argued in many editorials and articles how good it is that investors no longer have to overpay for a lot of the investments they make. So the rise of index funds and cheap exchange traded funds, they've really squeezed a lot of needless fees out of the asset management industry. And, you know, it would be easy to look at the flurry of enthusiasm for wealth and think that a a load more needless fees are being tacked on once more. I definitely understand that perspective. And certainly only people that really need this should be the ones buying it. But I do think it's a bit more nuanced than thinking about the fees that people paid for sort of active managers. You certainly can DIY your own wealth management using a brokerage account and ETFs. There's a whole subreddit full of Bogleheads who are fans of the index fund creator Jack Bogle, who profess to do just that. But even firms like Vanguard, which is the firm he founded, have published analysis showing that when left to their own devices, people tend to make some silly mistakes like being skittish when markets plunge, holding too much cash, not taking advantage of tax efficient accounts like IRAs in the US or ISAs in the UK. And so I do think it's sort of reasonable to think that hiring someone like this to sort of help you stay on the straight and narrow when it comes to retirement is not necessarily a bad idea for lost people. Yeah, and I think so long as those passive investments with very low fees are available to people, then them having more options is clearly not a problem in general. I do find the personal element here really, really interesting in the sense that, you know, the wealth manager is playing almost the role of a concierge or a valet more than a normal asset manager, not just in terms of the sort of personal element they're providing, the soft touch, but in terms of who's in the driving seat, because As you were saying at the beginning, Alice, if you're going to dump your money into a hedge fund, that doesn't buy you the right to call up the hedge fund manager and tell him that you think horses are a great investment or whatever, or it certainly doesn't (laughs) buy you the right to be listened to. Whereas, yeah, if you get on the phone to your wealth manager and you tell them that, they might push back a bit, but ultimately it's your money and it's their job to invest it as you want. So it helps create this huge amount of variation in what these wealth managers actually end up doing. And it makes it so much more of a jack-of-all-trades role. You know, you're choosing a portfolio of bonds one day and trying to explain to the second son of some family what he's going to get from his parents' fortune because they've misinvested it terribly the next. I guess you have to be a bit of an all-rounder to do it well. I have to say, I think if I had a few millions lying around, I probably would ignore Helen and buy the boat anyway. But no, I, I think as the wise man, notorious B.I.G. once said, "Mo money, mo problems. Now, I imagine it is very complicated managing a large fortune. You know, you hear these stories of lottery winners that spend madly for a few years and end up absolutely stone cold broke. So I see why the industry serves a useful role. Your uh, enthusiasm for buying boats and your uh, idea that more money, more problems is an appropriate mantra to have about investing are probably the reasons why you'll never need a wealth manager, Tom. <laughs> See, I always thought that Biggie's views on money were a little bit confused because Gimme the Loot from the uh, 1994 (laughs) hit album Ready to Die had a very different message when it came to acquiring money and the virtues of that. Speaking of big men departing the stage before they would ideally like to, this week I'm really looking forward to reading our piece on the successors to French President Emmanuel Macron. It's a really interesting reminder as to how much his place in the sort of French political stage has changed things because he doesn't have a natural successor. And indeed, it's not totally obvious how his entire political movement goes on without him after 2027 when he can't run again. Yeah, really looking forward to reading that. 
And you can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we will hear why some of the world's biggest banks are getting so excited about wealth management. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before the break, we heard exactly what wealth managers do, And it was once pretty specific to a small group of the extremely wealthy. But to understand why some of the larger banks see such a big opportunity in the sector, I spoke to Marcus Habel. Until three years ago, he was the CFO of wealth management at UBS, the world's second largest wealth manager. Now he works for Bain, a consultancy that has done a lot of work looking at the sector. Hello, Marcus. Welcome to the show. Hello, Alice. Thanks for having me. So last year for Bain, you wrote a long report doing a deep dive into wealth management and the opportunities in that business. Could you just talk us through the sort of key findings? What were the headlines from that effort? So the headlines, Alice, are pretty, pretty clear. So first of all, wealth management is potentially in banking, the most uh, attractive segment in banking overall. So it's really hugely, hugely attractive for several reasons we can discuss later. But I think that is on the surface. Below the surface, the industry is rapidly changing. There will be a pattern of winner takes all in the industry. So you could argue on the surface, super attractive industry. Everybody wants to enter the wealth management game. Under the surface, a lot of momentum, a lot of changes, which really differentiate going forward the winners and the losers in the industry. So it's a highly dynamic, highly attractive and highly interesting segment in banking. One of the other sort of points that your report makes is that it's growing enormously quickly. So uh, could you talk us through sort of, you know, it's an attractive business, it's changing very quickly, but it's also this big opportunity there, it seems. Yeah, just to give you some numbers, we expect 250 million new customers entering the wealth management business in the next 10 years, coming from the affluent space, coming from emerging markets, coming from younger generations. So it's really a booming industry in terms of new customers, new demands, new services. That's on the one hand side. Secondly, the demand for advice has been never as big as currently. So there is so much volatility in the markets. There is so much flux in terms of geopolitics that there is such a huge demand for good advice. So the service model of the classical wealth managers is in higher demand, if you want, than ever. Why don't we sort of go deeper on the first point you made, which is that this is an attractive business for banks. Why is that? Why is wealth management becoming appealing? Basically, two factors. One is it's a capital light model. So you don't need to use too much balance sheet to grow the business. That's obviously super, super attractive for banks. Secondly, the growth rates we have seen in the last decade and we expect as Spain for the next decade, you can call it 
unrivaled in banking because we just talked about the demographics. We talked about the demand for good services, good advice. It's really putting the industry on a much higher growth path than the average GDP per country. And you can see it in the capital market valuation levels. Yeah, If you boost your wealth management business, your valuation levels are going up. So there's a clear link between being strong in wealth management and getting better multiples in capital markets. If all the banks are sort of wanting to get into this business, you also said that you think it's going in a winner-takes-all direction. So maybe they won't all be successful. So what is it that's going on under the surface that makes you think that, that we're headed that way? Yeah, I think Alice, that's a really interesting part. So on the surface, as mentioned, the industry is attractive. Under the surface, there is a huge gap widening while we speak between winners and losers in the industry. Why is that so? Because in the industry, scale effects are really necessary to be a winner in the industry. Why is that so? You have basically three factors why scale matters in wealth management. One is there is only one free lunch in capital markets globally, which is global diversification. Yeah? And if you have a global footprint, a global content for your clients, then obviously you are in a good position to provide good advice for your clients. And that can be only offered by large global players. Secondly, regulations is getting more, let's say, demanding every day. So you need really some good scale yeah, to tackle all the regulatory requirements you need to have in terms of providing good services for your clients. And last but not least, tech investments. I just looked it up. Um, last year, the top 10 wealth managers globally spent $40 billion on tech investments that can be only basically provided by scale. Yeah? So these three factors foster these kind of Winner takes all, uh, a pattern we are currently seeing in the markets. On that technology point, people might think of traditional wealth management as very sort of personal, high touch. You have your advisors looking after sort of one or only a handful of very, very wealthy customers. So what ways are advisors able to use technology now to sort of provide a, a different service, maybe to sort of new kinds of customers? Basically, the likes of UBS and Morgan Stanley, they have tripled their productivity per advisor over the last decade. How have they done it? It's very much about enabling the client advisors via digital, via tech, to provide much faster, much more tailored, customized advice to their clients. So I think that is really the trick in the industry, yeah, to enable the advisors to be much more customized, much faster, much quicker to their clients so that clients can really have their advice when they want, about what they want, and um, in which medium they want to have these kind of advice. You also talked about different kinds of investments, so things like private markets becoming an important piece of this puzzle. Could you just explain um, what's going on with that part of the industry? So given the current inflationary environment, and you could expect somehow, I think rates are staying higher for longer, there is clearly a huge demand for real investments. We as, as Spain expect a huge push also into the private capital side. So if you just look on the smart money, like global family offices, they currently invest 30 to 35% of their portfolio into private markets. So if you can make these kind of private markets investments accessible to, let's say, the average high net worth investor, that is good for the client, it's good for the bank, and it's good for the overall performance of the client portfolio. When we've spoken in the past, you said that you thought there might be an analogy with the luxury handbag market. Is that right? 
Absolutely, Alice. I think the luxury industry is actually targeting exactly the same clients, global clients, affluent clients, millionaire clients. And if you compare notes between the luxury industry and the wealth management industry, you can really learn a lot from the luxury industry. The luxury industry really has boosted their client base from 40 million customers in 85 to over 400 million customers currently. So they have been able to be much more accessible yeah, in terms of client inroads. And at the same time, they are not losing the aura to the higher end. Yeah. So basically, the, the pattern is same clients, but the luxury industry has been much more successful in capturing the client potential globally. Wealth management is a luxury that many more people will be able to afford, just as with handbags, I guess is the, the argument. Yes, exactly. And uh, on that note, I think we might leave it there. But uh, Marcus, that was so insightful. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you, Alice. It was a pleasure also on my side. So, Tom, Mike, what do you make of what you've heard today? Has it made you want to rush out and undress in front of a wealth manager? Well, I don't know if many of them want me doing that, but it's certainly a very interesting industry at the moment. This idea of technology increasing the economies of scale, even in something as high touch as wealth management, really struck me. And it's part of a much wider business story. So back in 1990, the return on equity of Western companies with more than $10 billion in revenue was about one and a half times that of companies with less than $1 billion in revenue. But that ratio has tripled to four and a half times today. And and that's partly the growth in super profitable big tech. But even when you look within industries like financial services or retail or industrial goods, you really see profits shifting quite dramatically to big firms. And I think technological changes is a big part of that because software, which is becoming increasingly important in all of those places I mentioned, tends to be expensive to build up front, but then costs very little after that, which really does favor larger companies over smaller ones. So I guess I'm a bit of a cynic here, which is new because I'm usually a very sunny and charitable person. But there's two or maybe three things here that sort of cover a lot of the ground of what I think about this boom in wealth management. It is, as Marcus says, a capital light model, and it really boomed at a time when global banks were in a tough spot in terms of building up capital buffers and, and withdrawing from all sorts of markets that went wrong in 2008. It's also relatively high margin. It's difficult to commoditize, even with digitization. Part of the point of this is the personal interaction. And on top of that, you've got this thing about it giving you access to private markets. And I think that's one area where we do need to sort of slow the horses a little bit. I don't know whether we're going to look back at this in 10 or 20 years and think it was great when all of those sort of semi-sophisticated and unsophisticated investors thought they could make high returns by not marking their investments to market. I think there could well be a lot of people who wish they'd stuck with the ETFs when this all sort of shakes out. So listen, if you really want some sort of concierge to help you through things that's completely fair enough it can be anxiety inducing to think about how to invest your assets and people do have different needs in terms of their sort of risk profiles and what they might like but i'm not a hundred percent sure about the financial merits of this for a large portion of the customers that the industry would ideally like to have yeah so when you look at the literature evaluating whether 
these wealth managers can actually add much value. You know, asset allocation is one piece of the puzzle. And I agree with you. I don't know about the merits of having sort of the doors flung open to a load of opaque private markets funds for the masses, partly because... One of the reasons people argue that they tend to have higher returns is partly because they're illiquid. And I struggle to see how they are sort of illiquid if everyone can access them. But I do think that that sort of asset allocation, access to those kind of funds is just one piece of the puzzle. It's not sort of the whole prize in terms of how wealth managers can potentially sort of help people. But yeah, I think as they expand into sort of ever more customer bases, people should try to make fine decisions about the merits of using one of these advisors for themselves. In terms of the sort of industry story, the bit that I find the most interesting is what Tom picks up on at the top, which is this idea that you're starting to get these really powerful returns to scale uh, in this business. You know, it sort of was this very hands-on, very meet your sort of immaculately dressed three-piece suit-wearing advisor for lunch on Lake Geneva and have him talk you out of buying a yacht or bloodstock horses or whatever mad idea it was that you had. And that business was incredibly hard to grow because acquiring customers just took an enormous amount of face time and if a bank was looking at buying up a sort of wealth outfit, you would get to sort of acquire all the assets that it had without a sort of baked in growth engine that had limited appeal. But now you're seeing just absolutely rocket ship style growth in the big scale players who have built platforms and tools and acquisition channels using technology. There are sort of a handful of consultants who think sort of AI based tools will sort of help accelerate that even further. You're definitely seeing some of the big banks concentrate on building those out as well. What Mark has said about how productivity has tripled for advisors at some of these big firms over the past 10 or 15 years, it's just an enormous step change for the industry. And at UBS, which is the second largest wealth manager worldwide post-merger, it had its fastest ever quarter of asset wealth growth in the, the second quarter of this year. And Morgan Stanley, which is the biggest global wealth manager, it net new assets are growing at about 5% annually. And their boss, James Gorman, has set this $10 trillion target for wealth assets under management, which they're actually getting to much more quickly than anyone anticipated. Well, one good thing is that all the listeners of this podcast now know that uh, a boat doesn't have good resale value. It's not a good investment. There's no need to go to a wealth manager for that advice anymore. You've already been told quite clearly. We're going to get so many angry letters from the boat lobby after this episode, I'm sure. (laughs) But with that, I think it's probably time to turn to our uh, stats of the week. I will go first. So my stat of the week is seven and specifically seven nanometers, which is the size or rather the classification of the chip in Huawei's latest phone. It is powered by a chip developed by uh, Semiconductor Manufacturing International Core, or SMIC, which is a domestic Chinese semiconductor chip producer. What's interesting here is that the chips below 10 nanometers in size are typically the sort of dominion of the Taiwanese manufacturers. And this phone has just been released. And it's really, really interesting because it's led a lot of people to start discussing again whether US chip-related sanctions on China are working. Obviously, there's been sanctions against Huawei for quite a while, and they've just come out with this new phone with this powerful domestically made chip in it. So yeah, that's a lot of the conversation here in Taipei, certainly among semiconductor related companies. And it's something I think we're going to be paying a lot of attention to in the sort of weeks and months to come. How big is seven nanometers? A speck of dust? It's small. It's one nanometer less than eight nanometers, <laughs> is the way I describe it. Um, it and so I, I actually had a reader email that uh, one of the last times I wrote about this, and they said something really useful, which is that basically at some point, 
this became like the reason I said it was a classification rather than a size is that at some point semiconductor companies started being a little bit free and easy with what exactly they're, they're measuring here. And it's just whatever one was smaller than the last one gets knocked down a nanometer. So uh, I think we can just say that they're all very, very small and very, very powerful. And uh, it's all very impressive. But at some point, we're going to be talking about 0.5 nanometers and stuff. And I don't want to learn what a smaller measurement than that is, to be honest. These semiconductor companies are like, so how big is seven nanometers? They're like, well, how long is a piece of string? You know, it's very small. <laughs> this is like when Gillette put the sixth blade on the razor. It's like, I don't think anyone's counting at this point. It's fine. <laughs> you know, we're all very impressed. Well, from very small numbers to comparatively big numbers, my stat of the week is nine which is the number of biographies, at least that I could find, that have now been written about Elon Musk. So the latest of those and the second authorized biography is coming out next week. It's by uh, Walter Isaacson, who wrote a famous biography of Steve Jobs and has also done profiles on the likes of Leonardo da Vinci and, and Albert Einstein. Anyway, I've, I've just received a copy of it and I'm hoping it dishes up some uh, juicy details on the world's richest men. Speaking of great people, although not great men, my set of the week this week is 57%, which is the share of revenues from movie theatres that Taylor Swift will retain when uh, Eras Tour, the movie, begins airing uh, on October 13th. This deal has been actually sort of pretty interesting because she completely bypassed the movie studios. Uh, apparently, she contacted a few to see how they'd go about doing it, and none of them were willing to get it produced and ready as quickly. And so she just bypassed everyone and negotiated a direct deal with AMC. And 43% will go to AMC, the cinema chain, which is a higher slice than cinemas normally get. So uh, they were sort of happy enough to do that. But uh, yeah, she is keeping the rest. I have to say, I've been quite surprised to see how many notes from banking analysts talking about consumption patterns and economic data reference the era's tour Something came across my inbox the other day talking about how the tour is now shifting from the US to Europe and they're expecting that to show up in the aggregate spending data. Well, if you've seen any of the sort of meme pictures taken outside the Era's Tour locations where you've got dads in their 40s and 50s standing in packs, patiently twirling car keys and waiting for their teenage daughters to come out, I think the median investment bank analyst probably fits into that category. Several have probably found themselves in that position and that's where maybe the preoccupation with Taylor Swift's tour is coming from in investment bank research. Yeah, all the daughters of investment bankers just playing Love Story and other other hits on repeat in their houses. I'm sure they're like, this has got to be affecting everyone as much as it's affecting me. But uh, with that, I think uh, it's probably time to thank Helen Watson and Marcus Habel. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producers are Jason Palmer and Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Thank you. 
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.